The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody, welcome on back to Baseball History 101. On this episode, Matthew and I are going to cover the history of the commissioners of baseball. We're not going to have time to really dive super deep into all these commissioners, but we're going to touch base on all of them and kind of let you know what you need to know about each and every one of them. Oh, yeah. Um, there will be certain commissioners that we will, in the future, ideally have their own episodes about. But in the meantime, we're just going to gloss over the history of the commissioners, um, all 10 of them. And... um. I guess I'll let Matthew take it over from here. Yeah, man. So, before the advent of the commissioner, at least at the beginning of the 20, 20th century, both the American League and National League was ruled by a three-person committee called the National Commission. And it you for the most of it, it was the three members were the president of the American League, which was Ben Johnson at the time. He was the founder of the American League. Uh, the National League president, which at times it was, you know, John Heidler or John K. Tenner or Harry Pulliam, one of those guys. And then the third person, which was Cincinnati Reds owner, Gary Herman, who was Ben Johnson's drinking buddy. Which you think, why Why would you put you know, him in the the three, uh, the third person, but again, you know, it ain't what you know, it's who you know, right? That that we could we could delve on that another time. Herman probably deserves that. So well, I wouldn't have the job now if I didn't know somebody get me into the gate. You know, so yeah, what you know, it's who you know. And you know, and from 1903, when the National League and American League had the truce and decided to work together until 19 early 1920, baseball was governed by the National Commission, and we could do an episode of the National Commission in the future because there's lots to talk about with that one, how they ruled on cases and whatnot. But for the most part, it was how baseball ruled. But its undoing was the Black Sox scandal of 1919. And the Black Sox scandal, the gambling scandal, left a real big black eye on baseball. And that's another episode that we will do in the future because there's a lot to talk about with that one. And basically, the owners, the other owners other than Gary Herman, I guess Gary Herman later, but like they felt that the National Commission was just not getting it done. It was not cleaning up the game like it was supposed to be cleaning it up. So they're looking for a commissioner. Right? They're looking for a strong guy who's gonna the one person who's gonna be have all the power, is gonna make all the decisions on everything that goes down the game. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they chose a gentleman who was a judge, a federal judge, by the name of Kennesaw Mountain Landis. What a strong name, by the way. Right. Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Yeah. He and got, that almost sounds larger than life. Yeah. It just, and his dad, he got the name from his dad who was wounded at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in the, you know, in the Civil War. 
And so I guess I want to say he lost his leg. I don't have to go into it, but he got wounded at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. And so they named his son after the place where he got wounded. Right. And he was a judge from 1905 to 1922. Yeah. And we go, he, he, he's going to get his own episode because there's a lot to talk about with him. But and he, he took over as commissioner in 1920. Yeah. He replaced the National Commission because, you know, the owners just got fed up with the National Commission. So it's like, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to get a strong guy, one person who's going to rule baseball. And if y'all Google, Google him, pull up his Wikipedia page, he looks like a stone cold son of a gun. Yeah. I ain't here to take any of your BS. I love I'm here to handle business. That picture right there just means business. I always love looking at pictures of kids on Mount Lanus. The man was just something he was something to look at. Anyway, but the advent of the commissioner, from what uh, nationally president John Heidler he said on the requirements for this, you know, he said, We want a man as a chairman who will rule with an iron hand. Baseball has lacked a hand like that for years. It needs it now worse than ever. Therefore, it is our object to appoint a big man to lead the new commission. So originally they were going to do like an actual, they were going to replace, apparently from what Heiler was saying, they were going to replace their the old National Commission with another National Commission. And on November 8th of 1920, which was, which November, November 8th is my birthday, but not 1920, the owners of the National League, so eight National League owners and three American League owners, um, Met unanimously, met and they unanimously said the land is as head of the proposed commission. They they were like, this guy's strong, he's going to do it. But you know, they 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 approached Landis in his courtroom on November twelfth and said, "Hey, we want you to, you know, be the head of this commission." And Landis heard the owners, and he spread he actually expressed reluctance in doing this, but he took the job with a for seven years at a salary of $50,000 on the condition that he could remain on federal bench. So he was going to... Seven years at $750,000. The commissioner now makes a million dollars per team per year. Right. and That's he was, absurd. He was going to try to be commissioner as well as be a judge, which, you know... <laughs> but eventually... Um, Eventually, they said, you know what? We're not even going to just go do a commission. You're just going to be the main head honcho. You're going to rule baseball while Ben Johnson and John Heiler are just going to you know, do American National League affairs. You know, there was going to be no commission. You were going to be the commissioner, the sole commissioner. Kind of like how Napoleon, you know, it when Napoleon came to power in 1799, there was going to be a three-man I'm going to get the name wrong because it's been a while since I've read this. Like a three-man committee, it was going to be like Napoleon and two other guys that were going to rule France. And eventually Napoleon won out and became the sole ruler of France. Landis was going to be – it was similar to like Landis' case, but Landis was like, no, give me full power. I want full power. He was a power-hungry son of a gun, and he got that power. Like I said, if y'all uh, pull up his picture on his Wikipedia, he looks like a power-hungry son, son of a gun. And so the first thing was – the first thing he does in power, like his first full season, 1921, he bans the Black Sox. Like he makes an effort to clean the game. That was Rightfully the, so. Right. That's what he was hired to do, and that's what he set out to do. And he so he banned the eight Black Sox, Joe Jackson and all those guys. They there's, all a, um, there's a really good quote by a historian named um, Paul Gardner. 
And he wrote, Baseball had for some time been leaving, living uneasily in the knowledge that bribes were being offered by gamblers and that some players were accepting them. The players knew it was going on. The owners knew it was going on. But more important, the players knew that the owners knew. And they knew the owners were doing nothing about it for fear of a scandal that might damage organized baseball. Under such conditions, they quite obviously did not pay to be honest. And that's what he was here to clean up. Yeah. And, like, he didn't stop there with just the eight Black Sox. He banned lots of other people, too, for whether they did bet or allegedly bet on baseball, you know. Or they had, like, some sort of stain on their reputation, whether inside or outside of baseball. Like, um, like for example, uh, a Giants pitcher shuffling Phil Douglas, you know, he got, in 1922, he was pissed off at John McGraw for disciplining him for his drinking. And he wrote a letter to Les Mann of the St. Louis Cardinals suggesting that he would take a bribe to ensure the Giants didn't win the pennant. And Mann turned, like, turned it over to... He immediately turned it over to Branch Rickey, who managed the Cardinals at the time. And then he told Les Mann to contact Landis. He got a hold of Landis, and the Giants placed Douglas on the ineligible list, which was backed by Landis. And so he know like he was banned from baseball because he he suggested that he wanted to throw a game, even if he didn't throw the game, he was suggesting it. The, the mere thought of suggesting it was going to get you on that eligible list. So he cleaned up a whole bunch of guys. Like he got a lot of guys in the early twenties out of baseball for alleged gambling purposes or thinking about throwing games. So he was a strong guy in in clearing, getting cleaning up baseball. So, you know, that's one Which is kind of his role. Yeah. He was there to be the cleanup man. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, he was the cleanup man. He was the, yeah, he was the reliever. He's the closer. How about that? The the cleanup man. He's the janitor. Well, he's that that setup guy in here. We're going to bridge the gap. Let's get through this. Yeah. Like, he just, you know, and there's just, and the thing was, Landis, he, he also hated the farm system. He, <laughs> it's the craziest thing. Like, like we can get into this in, in his own episode, but when Branch Rickey created the farm system to help the St. Louis Cardinals, Landis hated it. He was just like, you know, like he, like, what are you doing, Ricky? Like, I just don't like this. He just thought it was stupid, and like he would. There was one time in like either the late twenties or thirties where Landis, like, the Cardinals had like a whole bunch of like back then the farm system the early version of the Cardinals farm system, they had a whole bunch of teams in this farm system and it would take guys forever to get up that chain to get to the Cardinals. And Landis, one time Landis was just like, screw it, man. I'm, I'm releasing everybody. I'm getting everybody out of the farm system. <laughs> like just release random players out of different teams. And it's just, cause he just hated it. He, he, he didn't understand it. He hated the farm system. He just didn't like the farm system one bit, you know, and one, um, he and Chuck Klein, who later became a Hall of Famer, and he played for the Phillies for most of his career. He was part of the Colonel's farm system, and in 1928, Landis ruled that Chuck Klein he, he, he made Chuck Klein a free agent because he held the he, he found that the Colonels had tried to cover Klein up by having him play in the league where they owned two affiliates. Like he would just find stuff to like just undermine the farm system because he just didn't like it. He hated it. But um, 
another thing about Landis, which people are not going to like about him, is that he was – he basically kept the status quo for not integrating the game. Which, again, that's standard for the time. We're not here to judge people on their mistakes in their time period. We've made this clear plenty of times to you guys. Yeah. And allegedly, Bill Veck, who would later own the Indians and the Browns and the White Sox, he wanted to buy the Philadelphia Phillies in 1943 and stock it with Negro League players. Whether it's true or not, that's up to for, that's been up for debate. But the rumor has it he wanted to do that and like stock the Phillies with Negro League players and then the Phillies would be great. Because the Phillies have been a terrible team for so many years, especially in the 40s. And he uh, supposedly he told Landis of his plans, that he was going to do it. And Landis didn't seem to care. He was like, okay, sure. But then the next day, supposedly he Landis got Jerry Nugent, who owned the Phillies, to sell the Phillies to William Cox instead of trying to sell them to Beck, which squashed his plans of integrating the Phillies and integrating the game. But that's a, that, again – as I've read up and on Vec biographies and other stuff, like it's it's been up for debate whether this had happened or not. If it did, it backfired on Landis because William Cox, who bought the Phillies, was caught for gambling either for the Phillies or against the Phillies. Like he was gambling, betting on his own team or against his own team routinely. So Landis had to ban him after a year. Like he was banned from baseball. One of the few owners if anything, who got banned, you know, like actually banned from baseball. Like Steinberger got banned, but then he got brought back. William Cox was banned, and he never came back. He's like, you're no longer, don't ever associate yourself with baseball because you 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 screwed up. You know, you can't bet on your own team or can't bet against your team as an owner. You know? There's one more thing about Landis that really stands out. Yeah. And that's the Ruth Moisel barnstorming incident. Yes, yes. And um, Ken Burns talked about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, at his time of appointment, that was very common. When we've talked about barnstorming in our podcast in the past, yeah, of players just going and playing and pickup games, pretty much. If for lack of a better term, we're calling pickup games. Yeah, all over the country to make a little a supplemental money and um, teams play. They visit some smaller cities and towns and play games, and admission will be charged. And the players they get a cut of admission. The stadium will make a cut of admission. Whoever put it on, we get a cut of admission and. Everybody, everybody scratch my back, scratch you, scratch mine. We're all happy. Yeah. Um, but he was not a fan of Babe Ruth doing that um, after after the 1990 season because he had been sold to the Yankees. and That's a big deal in him. Let me see here. The two men clashed and helped the national pastime, answer the quote, become overcome the Bicel scandal. One through his seemingly iron will, the other thinks it's not so bad. Judge Kennesaw, Mountain Landis, and Babe Ruth battled over the right of a ball player from a pennant-winning squad to barnstorm in the offseason. Also involved was the commissioner's continued determination to display, as he had through his banishment of the Black Sox, that he had established the boundaries for organized baseball. These boundaries Landis intended to demonstrate applied even to the sport's most popular and greatest score. Significant, too, only Babe Ruth now contended with Commissioner Landis for the title of baseball's most important feature. He fined Babe Ruth, uh, I think, 100 bucks, which is big money back then. Yeah. That's probably a couple games paid back then. Yeah, it was a lot of money. <laughs> but then, I guess, 
the Bob Moisel, Bill Piercy were on that tour as well, yep. and they all got the same punishment. Um, Tom Sheehan, who, who was in the minor leagues at the time, um, Carl Mays, Willie Shang. Yeah. Willie Shang, yeah. But just, you know. <laughs> but I guess they changed the rule because in 27 28, the Yankees, they won the World Series both years, and then both years, Garrick and Ruth Barnstorm. So I guess it changed later, but we'll have to do more research on that. But you know, uh, I'm Landis, willing to bet Landis might have realized, hey, these guys doing this, they're going to get people to drive a little bit to, or catch a train to maybe come catch a ball game. Right, and it's good for the game, you know. Have Babe Ruth go out to your town to play baseball and sign autographs and take it. You know, just it's part of the experience of Babe Ruth for guys who can't go east. People couldn't go east to go see them play, you know. Anything else to add on Landis? No. Uh, well, other than he passed away in 1944 in office. So he died in office, as you can say. So let's move on to our second guy, Happy Chandler. And he is from Kentucky. And before he got to the major, before he became commissioner, he was a lieutenant governor of the, well, first off, he was a Kentucky state senator. And then he became the lieutenant governor of Kentucky for 1931-35. And he was the 44th and 49th governor of Kentucky. Yes. So he had some time between his stints. Yes. And he was also U.S. states. At the time of his appointment to commissioner, he was the U.S. senator from Kentucky. Or one of two senators from Kentucky, you know, because he had two senators. And so this guy was a career politician. I guess you could say Landis was a politician too, but... You know, in a different sense. In a different sense. This guy was a true career politician. And he got into the hall in 1982 on the Veterans Committee vote. Yeah. Him, yeah. Olandis also got elected to the Hall of Fame like right after his death. Right. But yeah. it was on the, um, it wasn't Veterans Committee. It was, uh, it was the writers maybe. I don't know. But it was I like, got it right here. Uh, Landis got in on um, the Old Times Committee. Yeah. And so. A friend of Happy Chandler's, John O. Gottlieb, who was in the War Department, U.S. War Department, he suggested Chandler as a successor. And the owners, who had been afraid that their players would be made eligible for the draft during the war, decided that their new commissioner needed to have the skills and influence to represent baseball's interests in Washington, D.C. And since Happy Chandler was a career politician, that made perfect sense. They could advocate on behalf of baseball to make moves happen. Right. Especially during a war. And that kind of made the owners like him a lot. Yeah. Um, and the commissioner's $50,000 salary, about five times that of the senator time, was definitely enough for him to consider that as his full-time gig, I feel like. Yeah. And even though – so they consider and, – and he got chosen to be the senator, the, senator, the commissioner. But other candidates were – Considered like we're considered. Lord like, Frick was up for it, right? And he was, and we're going to talk about him next because he eventually became he, he was Chandler's successor. And um, Democratic committee chairman um, Robert Hannigan, yep, postmaster at the time, um, James Farley, uh, FBI director J. Edgar Hoover was even yeah putting the putting the putting the mix. And uh, Warren Giles and uh, Phil Wrigley were also considered, and Larry McPhail, who we talked about in the family episode. But um, the owners met in it met in uh, Cleveland, right? Yeah, they met in, in forty five, in April forty five. Yeah, to vote for a new commissioner, and his name was not on the short list, which had Frick, Farley, Hannigan, 
um, a guy named Fred M. Benson, who was a former federal judge. Um, a guy named Frank Lausch. Correct me. I'm sorry if I pronounced Lausch that wrong. sounds about right. Um, he was an Ohio governor yep. at the time. And none of them received the two-thirds majority. And McPhail and New York Giants saw a horse stone them. The owners took an informal vote to see if anyone had the potential to be elected. And his name appeared in the top three on each of the 16 ballots. Yeah. So he was the front runner, but he wound up with the gig. Right. But, you know, like I said, being a career politician, he represented, he would help represent baseball's interests in Washington, D.C. So that was a plus. So after two votes, he, after two ballots, um, he did, he received the necessary majority, and then a third vote was taken, and it made the choice unanimous. And like, he was in the Senate for a few months after his election as commissioner because he wanted to cast his vote on a um, certain political thing the Bretton Woods Monetary Agreement and the Charter of the United Nations. And then once that, once the things he wanted to see through in his Senate term were done, he became full-time commissioner and less yeah. involved in the politics. And he moved the commissioner's office from Chicago, where land, where it was stationed for Landis, to Cincinnati in 1946. It's in which, Milwaukee now, right? I think it's, no, it's in New York City. Oh, I mean, it's in New York City now, but for a minute it was in Milwaukee. It probably was because Seeley. Well, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about Seeley later. Um so, in '46, there was another. There was a league in Mexico called the Mexican League, and they were trying to, you know, offer higher salaries to get play like four major league players to go to Mexico to play. And they got 18 players. Well, actually, Chandler was like Chandler tried to deter players from considering the Mexican League by imposing a five-year ban for major league baseball to anybody who did. It did not return by April 1946. But 18 players went anyway, like Sal Magley, who pitched for the Giants and the uh, Giants and the Dodgers, and Mickey Owen, who was a catcher for the Dodgers, and Vern Stevens. They initially agreed to play in Mexico as well, but returned before team was deadline. And Ted Williams and Musial and Rizzuto were offered a whole bunch of money, but they didn't go because, you know, they're like, whatever. So <laughs> the Mexican League... At least that variation of the Mexican League was thwarted because, you know, just not not enough interest in going. And Chandler's like, hey, you know, people are like, do we really want to get banned from Major League Baseball for five years? No. <laughs> we'll stay in the U.S. And, of course, this is the big issue with Chandler was integration of baseball. Right? And people thought, you know, being from Kentucky, some people think Kentucky's a southern state. I've never considered Kentucky a southern state. But be, be, some people view Kentucky's Kentucky. like half and half, in my opinion. Yeah. But like she, the northern half of Kentucky isn't, but the southern half kind of is. Yeah. Like, you know? And Chandler had a southern drawl being from Kentucky. And, you know, he um, – somebody asked him what he thought about integration. Like, do you think black players should play in the major leagues? He said, what? I remember reading this. I remember watching this on uh, Ken Burns' baseball in the '40s episode, and he's like, "Yeah, they should. Like, hell yeah, why not? If they can go fight in even Iwo Jima and fight for us in World War II, they absolutely can play Major League Baseball." And then you have Ranch Rickey signing Jackie Robinson to go play in the minor league Montreal Royals and then integrate baseball in 1947. Chandler was commissioner for that. You know, uh, they signed Jackie Robinson literally days prior to him becoming the commissioner. Yeah, which he didn't play until after he was commissioner. But 
Right, but with Landis, you know, with Landis out of the way and Chandler not willing to continue the status quo, Ricky saw his chance and said, I'm going to sign him. Let's do it. You know, and he did. Which, that could be a future episode, too. But, you know, it's just... Uh, he supported it. He's like, hey, let's do this. And it happened, so... And, you know, when... And, of course, you know, during the 47th... During Jackie's first season, obviously, he faced a lot of vitriol and racism because he's the first black guy playing in the major leagues since the 1880s, you know. And, you know, he... Chandler's like, hey, Chandler threatened the Philadelphia Phillies and Ben Chapman, who were getting on to Robinson a lot, you know, during that season. He's like, he, he threatened him with uh, disciplinary action if any more uh, taunting of this stuff happened. And they, the Phillies and Ben Chapman uh, cleaned up their act after that. So he's like, hey, I, I want integration to happen. Let's do this, you know. And then he also suspended Leo DeRocher for um, – Oh, what, what, <laughs> we get that too. But he suspended Leo DeRocher for the year, so he was going to manage the Dodgers in 47. But yeah, he, and they removed – he was going to leave the Dodgers to manage the Yankees, and Branch Rickey wasn't a fan of it. Yeah. And um, he encouraged Chandler to begin an investigation into uh, DeRocher's gambling habits. Yeah. Because apparently everybody in the early 1900s gambled on something, apparently. <laughs> and uh, – <laughs> um, and uh, – his associate, an actor of a guy named George Raft. Um, he was a film actor and a dancer, and he was um, usually did portrayals of gangsters and crime and melodramas in the 30s and 40s. And he's a stylish, leading man in dozens of movies, according to Wikipedia. But um, Chandler DeRocher had a meeting, and Chandler canceled DeRocher to abandon his gambling, and it just, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so he got suspended for the year, and they put and the Dodgers have replaced him with oh I can oh Bert Schotten. So he was Jackie Robinson's first manager with the Dodgers, and like he was a branch rookie guy, like a branch rookie crony, I guess you can say. But another thing, Chandler sold the, in nineteen forty seven. Chandler sold the broadcasting rights. This is really awesome. Yeah, he sold the broadcasting rights to the of the World Series on the radio for four hundred seventy five thousand dollars. And use the money from the contract to establish a pension fund for baseball players, which is something they're probably arguing about today. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, yeah. So he, if for Major League Baseball have that pension fund, you can thank Happy Chandler. For oh, that. and then in '49, he negotiated a seven-year contract with the Gillette Razorblade Company and a Mutual Broadcasting System to broadcast the World Series, yep. and the brought proceeds from that 4.37 million dollar deal went directly to the pension fund as well. Yeah. So I guess his legacy might kind of be starting that pension fund. Yeah. I mean, as well as being good to go with integration, he's like, let's do it, you know. But then in 49, a guy named Jan Danny Gardella, who had left the Giants to the Mexican League, filed a lawsuit claiming his ban on players who went to the Mexican League had denied him his means of pursuing his livelihood, and he wanted 100 grand in damages from the suspension. <laughs> and he claimed that the award should be tripled because baseball was subject to federal, federal antitrust laws, which they still are and I have a problem with. Yeah. But similar suits were filed by Max Lemire and Fred Martin, both of whom also played in Mexico, Mexico. And a federal court refused to reinstate three players 
because they're working for a private entity, basically. Yes. Yeah. But I read but from what I'm reading about it. After those lawsuits, trying to alleviate the pressure on um, baseball. Yeah. He lifted the bans on the players who had gone to Mexico almost two years earlier. Hmm. Almost two years early. So he shortened their suspension. And they dropped their lawsuits, but Gardella pursued his. And after his lawyer publicly questioned Chandler in court about how baseball's antitrust exemption for a day and a half, the executives, including Chandler, agreed to settle for 60 out of the 100000 he was asking for. Yeah. Um, his contract wasn't due to expire until 1952, but he asked the owners to extend it in December 49, and they voted against it, but promised to reconsider in 1950. And it was 9-4-7 against, leaving him three votes short of the ne- necessary three-fourths majority. He asked for it to be reconsidered, but it was 9-7. He still didn't get it. So his contract was not extended, and he resigned effective July 15th, 1951. Yeah. Anything else stuck out about him? Well, uh, after his time as commissioner, he went back to – he got elected as governor of uh, Kentucky again. So he was good. For the second time, right? For the second time. So he was governor before and governor after baseball. And then he – you know, he was seeing my old Kentucky home at Kentucky basketball games. Like there's a video of him doing that during the Rick Pitino era. Right before he died, sitting old Kentucky home. And he lived to be like 93, 4. He lived, he lived a long time. When did he pass away? I think it was like 90. Let's see, go back. I think it was like 92. No, 91. He passed away in 1991. He's in the Ken Burns baseball singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, but like he's old and you can barely hear him. Yeah, I'll make sure to go watch that series if you hadn't. Yeah. And Enjoy he, the music. My cousin, second cousin. Yeah. Bobby that, Horton. The man loved his Kentucky Wildcats, so he would wear like a Kentucky hat at. After baseball, he wear a Kentucky, blue Kentucky hat. You know, the, the games, like All Star games and whatnot, or Kentucky basketball games. So that's all I got to say about Happy Chandler. He was very influential in that sense of getting doing integration and getting the pension fund ready for the ball players. So, all right, so we wrapped up with him. Yep. Okay. So now the man who replaced Happy Chandler was Ford Frick, and this is your first commissioner who has ties to the game of baseball before he became commissioner. He was, a, he was a journalist. He wrote for the New York American. And then he was also a broadcaster in New York for WOR. And Correct, if I'm right, the Ford C. Frick Award is a journalism award. Right. It's Yeah, Ford C. Frick. Frick is for broadcasting and the Spink is for journalism. Spink is the, sport, the, the sporting news founder. So anyway, and then he became nationally president in 1934. And he was nationally president from 34 until his time as commissioner in 1951. So this guy is baseball. He knows baseball. He's all about baseball. He's the first baseball guy. Now His picture on Wikipedia looks a lot more welcoming than the former two we've talked about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he agreed. So Frick agreed to become commissioner with a seven-year contract worth $65,000. So we got a $15,000 raise from... Landis and Chandler to Frick. Frick's like, I want more money. I got the baseball experience. I want more money. What year was this contract? Seven years for 65000 a year. What year? 1951. So that's not much more money than I'm making now. So with inflation, he's probably making pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, he's not hurting for money. And so Frick decided to move the office, the league's office from Cincinnati to New York. And that's where it usually is today. It's where it's today. So Frick, he 
His times commissioner was with relocation and expansion, right? The 50s, you saw all the teams moving. You saw, well, not all teams, but most teams moving. You saw Boston move to Milwaukee, the Braves move to Milwaukee. The A's moved from Philadelphia to Kansas City. The Browns moved from St. Louis to Baltimore to become the Orioles. And the most, the, the two earth shattering ones, New York Giants and Brooklyn Dodgers leaving New York to go to California to bring Major League Baseball to the West Coast and Los Angeles and San Francisco. Let me ask you this question, Matthew. Yeah. Do you think that those two franchises, although they alienated the New York people, because they still had the Metropolitans, mm-hmm. the New York Metropolitans, Mets as we know them now, yeah. they still had the Yankees. Do you think that those two teams moving cross country really expanded the game and made it more of a national thing? I would say so because if it wasn't good, if it wasn't going to be expansion, it was going to be relocation. And the Giants, I, I think mean, relocation is better than expansion. Yeah. Personally, yeah, because then you dilute the player pool. Right, it, it's right, and you don't have to have expansion draft. But and I'm gonna be brief. Which about I'm a this. hockey fan, and I'm, de- I'm dealing with that right now, and it frustrates me. So, yeah. and I'm gonna be really brief about this. The Giants knew they had to leave New York because they they were the third team out of the three team city. The Dodgers, to Walter O'Malley's credit, because people like to bash him all the time, he tried to keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn. But Robert Moses, who was the city commissioner, he's part of the city of New York. He wasn't mayor, but he was a big money, big wheeler dealer. He would not give Walter O'Malley space to build a new stadium, which they were going to build where the Brooklyn Nets play at the Barclays Center. That, that area. They were going to build it there, a new Dodger stadium there, and Moses said no. And so Walter O'Malley said, fuck you, I'm going to L.A., and I'm taking the Giants. For what's worth, do you agree with me that those two teams moving cross-country yeah. really kind of helped grow the game nationally? I was, Yes, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. So – you got you got relocation, and then in the sixties you have expansion starting. This in sixty one, the Los Angeles Angels, and the expansion Washington Senators, who replaced the old Washington Senators, who moved to Minnesota to become the Twins in after the nineteen sixty season, and then in sixty two you had the New York Mets and the Houston Colt forty fives, which became the Astros. So his time was expansion, and then it was discussed in the All Star episode, our first one. After the 1957 All-Star Game where Cincinnati fans voted like 12 of their players in the All-Star Game, Fort Frick took away uh, fan voting from his, you know, after that. And it didn't get reinstated until Bowie that's, King. That's the thing I was about to bring up. I'm sorry. About yeah. him. Um, <laughs> because in ahead, 1957, yeah. um, there was ballot stuffing. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the ballots originated from Cincinnati and it. Yeah, they got stacked by the big red machine, well, the pre-big red machine, but yeah, um, and they stacked it, and he overruled the fan vote and removed two of the reds out of the starting lineup and appointed two replacements from other teams, mm-hmm. and he took away the vote from the fans and kept it that way for the rest of the time he was the commissioner. Yeah, he said, he said "We doing a fan vote? Y'all were too savvy with this, and this is free social media. I like, guess easy to sell fan vote right now." Yeah, but he said. No, we ain't doing this nonsense. No, he said nope. But um, but his most controversial act, other than that, was the asterisk. Right, he is known as the asterisk. Like somebody wrote a biography about Fort Frick a few years ago, and the title says Fort Frisk, Fort Frick with an asterisk next to his name. 
as the title. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'm going to dive into that right now. Yeah. His most highly criticized decision as a commissioner was when he went and asked the uh, baseball record keepers to list the single season home run records of Babe Ruth and Roger Maris separately based on length of season played. Because 61 was the first year they go to 162 games. And I agree with them to a to a point. Yeah. But the games evolved, and everybody understands the difference in the eras. Yeah. You know, everybody understands that we have live ball, dead ball era. There's separate stats for that. You have – everybody understands it. You don't need to put an asterisk on somebody. No. The true baseball people like me, you – and some of our friends that are listening are going to understand what happened in what time period. And you don't have to put an asterisk next to it. Yeah. You know, it just, so Roger Maris, you know, he had 61 home runs. He broke Roof's record, but he didn't do it in the 154 that Roof did in 1927. So Frick's like, all right, asterisk, which I don't even pay attention. How many to. home runs did he beat Roof by? By one. It was one home run. Over, but he had an extra, what, six, seven games to do it? Yeah, eight games. Eight games. Yeah. So, you know, I can see some merit to his gripe. Right. But at the same time. You know, but it's. It, it, it's at just, the same time, his gripe's invalid because everybody. When people think of the greatest baseball hitter ever, they don't think about Roger Maris. No. I mean, the greatest home run hitter ever, they don't think about Roger Maris. They think about Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth. And I guess now Barry Bonds. Yeah. Willie Mays yeah, in there, too. Willie know. Mays, yeah. But but it's just like, it, it, maybe he feared that Roof was, the memory of Roof was fading. And maybe that was Frick's fear. But again, it's like, I whatever. It, Keep your icons kind of Yeah. And so, it. yeah, I mean, just whatever. Uh, whatever, Ford. Anyway. <laughs> um, but so he retired in 1965, and he was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1970 by the Veterans Committee. So he's in the Hall of Fame, as well as having an award, you know, named after him for the best uh, broadcaster, or uh, for for broadcasters to get in there to shine in the Hall of Fame. So yeah, Forrest Rick was influential. That's all I really got to say about him. So let's talk about our next guy. Let's do it, Matt. What do we got? William Eckert, who was a lieutenant general in the United States Air Force. He had no connections to baseball. And the only reason that... You know, he was even considered is because his friend and Curtis, fellow Air Force officer Curtis LeMay, who was George Wallace's running mate in the 1968 election, presidential election, he suggested it. He, he only became a serious candidate for the commissionership after Curtis LeMay gave Major League Baseball a recommendation for him. Well, let me back you up one second because this guy has a phenomenal military record and I want to, rec- I want to recognize him for that. Absolutely, yes. Um, he graduated at West Point, appointed second lieutenant of field artillery, mm-hmm. and then he went to the Air Corps Flying School at Brooks and Kelly Fields in San Antonio, graduating October 31, transferred to the Air Corps, advanced flying school at Kelly Field, Texas. Two months later, he transferred to the U.S. Army Air Corps and was assigned to the Suffrage Field, Michigan, for duty with the 36th Pursuit Squadron. In 35, he, he has, in 35, he um, went to the Panama Canal Zone, where he was stationed from 35 to 37. In 37, he was named a flying instructor at the Air Corps Primary Flying School at Randolphville, Texas. In 38, he was selected as one of two officers for advanced education at the Harvard Graduate School of Business Administration. And in June 1940, he graduated the Masters. 
After graduating Harvard, he was assigned to Wright Field, Ohio, where he served successfully as production executive comptroller and as executive of the Material Command, which is a big deal. That's I used to date a girl here in Huntsville. Her dad was big in Material Command for the Army. Yeah. In um, January of 44, he entered the Army and named Staff College. Upon graduation two months later, he was assigned to Europe as commander of the 452nd Palm Group. So he's fighting in World War II right here. Um, he later served in the European Theater as Chief of Maintenance and Chief of Supply for the 9th Air Force Service Command. In July 1945, he was assigned as Executive in the Office of Assistant Chief of Staff for Material at Air Force Headquarters and later was appointed Chief of Readjustment and Procurement Division of that office. In November of 47, he was assigned to the Office of the Secretary of the Air Force and two months later became Executive of the Undersecretary of the Air Force. In 49, he became the Comptroller of Air Force Material Command at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. That's heavy stuff. Yeah. For a guy that's going to be an executive. A great military background. So on November 17th, 1965, by a unanimous vote of then 20 major league club owners, Eckert became the fourth commissioner of baseball. However, when he became the commissioner, Eckert personally had not seen a game in person in over 10 years. He was too almost, busy fighting. He was too busy fighting. The man, you know, man had a reason. I wouldn't bash him for that. He was almost completely unknown to the public, leading sports writers to nickname him the Unknown Soldier. Now, supposedly, That's I read a badass nickname. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And now, supposedly, I, I, it's not on Wikipedia. I, I, I read it somewhere in the years past that Eckert, I guess, because he hadn't seen a game in ten years, he was too busy fighting. He didn't really wasn't that knowledgeable. He has a reputation for not being that knowledgeable about the the game, at least teams. So we're saying he's kind of going to about to become one of the first managers in the business sense of it. Yeah, and so he's like, or not managers, commissioners. The story goes, he confused, he combined, he he referred to the Reds as the Cincinnati Cardinals. That that was like I read it somewhere. I'm thinking, I wish I could remember. All right, I read next that. commissioner, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, but he, he pissed he he pissed off the public. By canceling baseball games after the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and RFK in 1968, but MLK, but like MLK, they had riots like after his death, so it made sense to cancel the games. And then RFK, well, you know, it was just the two big assassinations. Like, yeah, maybe it's not a good time to play baseball, so they canceled some games when they. You were mean uh, JFK? No, no, R, no, no, RFK because JFK died. Like, okay, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Right, and so and the and the owners were pissed off at him because he refused to deal forcefully with substantial business issues, and you know the owners anticipated a player strike in '68, which didn't happen, and they had long since lost confidence in Eckerd's ability to handle the situation. So Eckerd was forced to resign at the end of the 1968 season, even though he had still played three years on his contract. So he made a bright a year as commissioner. Yeah. Um, go back and look at his military record. Military record. He has stellar military commendations, mm-hmm. but apparently he just wasn't the guy for baseball. Right. But you know, to his credit, he developed more effective committee actions in baseball, streamlined business methods, and helped stabilize franchises with bigger stadiums and long-term leases. And he also worked hard to promote the game internationally, which included the Dodgers tour of Japan '66. So he did some good. But which you know. I feel like, uh, what's the movie with um, what's his name where he goes and plays in Japan? Uh, oh, 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 Tom Selleck. Yeah, Tom Selleck movie. I can't think. Of, I can't think of it. Little big, little big man. Oh shoot! 
<laughs> no, I can't. I think, think that movie kind of relates to this topic. Yeah, a little bit. When I was reading up on him today. Yeah. Um, what I can think about him is him expanding baseball internationally and that Thompson movie, whatever it's called. Yeah. And so, and then he passed away three years later in 1971 of a heart attack while playing tennis in the Bahamas. And he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So if you go visit Arlington National Cemetery, you can see the grave of a former commissioner of baseball as well as a very decorated... He is highly decorated. We didn't cover all of his achievements. Right. I didn't have enough breath to cover them all. Yeah, but the man served his country and served baseball with... Whether he was a great commissioner or not, doesn't matter. He, he served both with, I would say, dignity and some respect. So now let's move on to the next commissioner. Now, it's it's pronounced Bowie Coon. When I first encountered his name as a kid, I thought it was Bowie Khan. But it's Bowie Coon. It's a very unique name. And he's a lawyer. Oh, I'm sorry, he was a lawyer. And the way he got into baseball was he joined a law a law firm called Willoughby Farr and Gallagher and there were they were the National League's law firm in business stuff they represented the National League so that's how Coon got his start in, in base is connected with baseball and Bowie Coon is kind of like a Bowie knife yeah but it's a Bowie knife right and uh that, that's how I kind of was putting it together when I was reading it up on the last few days. Yeah, and before he was commissioner, while he was with Wilkie Farr and Gallagher, he served as a counselor for the National League in a lawsuit brought against brought against it by the city of Milwaukee when the Braves moved to Atlanta after the 65 season. And so... And can you look at his picture on um, Wikipedia? Yeah. He just looks like a businessman that would sue baseball for his team leader. Yeah. It, it's, he just looks like a businessman here to make money. Yeah, and usually, like, his picture is kind of misleading because most of the time you see, I've seen Bowie Coon wear his glasses. Like, throughout the 70s, he always was wearing glasses. Now is that picture not like he should be selling me a used 1947 Cadillac? Yeah, I mean, he probably <laughs> would. And so when they forced Eckert out, the owners did, Coon seemed like a logical replacement because he was very aware of the inner workings of baseball because of a lawyer. And, you know... His close challengers were the president of the Yankees, Mike Burke, who we talked about in the first Steinbrenner episode, and Chubb Feeney, who was the president of the Giants, who later became president of the National League. And Coon was the youngest commissioner in baseball history at 42 years old. Is he still the youngest? Yeah, I believe he's still the youngest. That's, I mean, that's that, you, that's your age limit to be president. No. 43 is president. Right. 43 is like the youngest president, T.R., Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, Kennedy, you know. Isn't that, isn't that the age requirement for president, 43 years old? I correct think me if I'm wrong. No, I think Fans, correct us if I'm wrong. But. I think it's 35. I think you're right. Yeah, you're right. So anyway, Coons, Coons time is Coons gonna Coons gonna get his own episode because there was a lot, a lot happening in baseball during Coons time as commission. The 1981 labor strike is a big thing that really comes up when you talk about him, right? As well as the 72 strike that also happened. But a big thing, the end of baseball's reserve clause. And the birth of free agency. Out in 81. Yeah. You know. And then, you know. And. Attendance went They up. went from 23 million fans nationwide in 68 to 45 and a half in 83. So he. Yeah. He basically doubled attendance in less than 20 years. Right. Um, you know. 
the first night game in World Series history. Do you think television has something to do with that? Oh, the first night game in World Series history? Yeah. No, 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 not the first night game. But him, him, um, it took over in 68. Or, I would say from 23 million in 68 to 45 and a half million attendance game in, in attendance in uh, 83. Yeah. Do you think the television had a lot to do with that? I would say so because, you know, NBC and not saying we know anything to say about this. We don't have facts on this, but we're just do we think it had that? Right. And I would say they I'll say television handed that, like, you know, NBC's game of the week or whatever. And just I get I I'm sure he had like television contracts, you know, as well, just to, because he has to compete with the NFL. The NFL's on the rise. It's overtaking baseball and popularity thanks to the Super Bowl. Right? So Owners were like, oh, man, we got to do something, you know, and Coon. I mean, eventually successfully did, which I hate, but. Yeah, which <laughs> I hate that, too, but that's another topic for another time. But, like like I said, a lot of stuff happened in Bowie Coon's time as commissioner, which he's going to get his own episode in the future because there's a lot. Like, for example, uh, the first night game World Series happened in 1971, and this was Coon's idea because he felt that. Baseball could attract a larger audience featured by picture primetime telecast as opposed to a mid-afternoon broadcast when most fans are working at school. And he pitched the idea to NBC. And Game 4 of the 71 World Series was the first night game. An estimated 61 million people watched Game 4 on NBC. Television ratings for a World Series game during daytime hours would not have approached that number. Which makes sense. And so, you know, and we talked about this in the World Series episode, you know, day... Day, by that, after that, day games, the World Series faded out until like, you know, the 80s when it, it was all night, which made sense. And then Kurt Flood, you know, he, in Coon's first year, you know, Kurt Flood's like, hey, man, I don't want to get traded to the Phillies because Phillies have a bad reputation for being not so friendly to, not being friendly to African Americans. Like Dick Allen, you know, he gets another. So I don't want to go to the Phillies. I like to stay with the Cardinals. And Bowie Coon's like, no, you, you can't. <laughs> like, Flood wanted to be a free agent. He wanted the commissioner to give him be a free agent. And Coon's like, no. And so Flood sued Coon because of the reserve clause. And they went to, they went, they went all the way to the Supreme Court and Kurt Flood lost. But his action of getting the ball rolling to challenge the reserve clause later helped and through that decade paved the way to get free agency going after the 75 season. Right. So you can thank Kurt flood and his action of suing major league baseball to get the free agency thing going. Right. And then like he clashed with Charlie Finley, a bunch. And I want to with- backtrack to something in 1970. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jim Bouton's ball four. Yep. Jim Bouton. Bouton. Yeah, ball four, which Bouton. we talked about in the 69 episode. He demanded that he retracted everything he said in that book. Yeah. And it has now been republished several times and is considered a classic. Mm-hmm. So he was doing whatever he could to maintain the integrity of baseball and not have anything negative published about the baseball, even if it was the truth. Yeah. Is what I'm, I'm reading out of that. Right. He felt like he... Jim Bouton. Yeah, he felt that was detrimental to baseball. Or every time he ruled something, 
and we'll talk about it in his future episode. Every time he ruled something, he would say something along the lines of it's detrimental to baseball or it's not in the best interest of baseball every time he makes a ruling. Or almost every time he makes a ruling. So it's like you're going to hear a lot of that from Kuhn, you know, about certain things. And he clashed with, like, you know, Ted Turner and Charlie Finley over stuff, which we'll get into, you know. And then we talked about, you know, 1971, Central Page gets elected and they were not going to put him in the plaque gallery. But then everybody got pissed off about it. And they said, okay, he's going in the plaque gallery. And just, you know, <laughs> it just banning people like banning Willie Mays and um, Mickey Mantle from the game for a brief time because they decided to go work at a casino or casinos and just, <laughs> I mean, he's just something else, man. <laughs> but the more I read about him, um, 1980, he uh, sat with at a baseball game with Navy Admiral Porn POW from the Iranian hostage crisis. Yeah. And then the whole Kurt Flood deal, which is a different deal. They St. Louis traded Kurt Flood, Tim McCarver, baseball analyst. Yep. Byron Brown and uh, lefty Joe Horner. That's the Nets household name, damn near, also. Yeah. To the Phillies for a first baseman and a second baseman, Dick Allen, Cookie Rojas, and a right-hander, Jerry Johnson. And he refused to report – Flood refused to report the uh, Phillies, citing the team's poor record and the fact they played in the dilapidated Kalimax Stadium <laughs> and in front of racist fans. So he for, – the Flood forfe- forfeited a uh, relatively lucrative – $100,000 contract by his reputedly traded. Yeah. And um, in a letter to Kuhn, he demanded the commissioner declare him a free agent. Is that what you're getting into just a second ago? Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. But you go into it. We'll get more into it in the Kuhn episode. I will read the letter right now. Okay. December 24th, 1969. After 12 years in the major leagues, I do not feel I'm a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespective of my wishes. I believe that any system which produces that result violates my basic rights as a citizen and is inconsistent with the laws of the United States and the sovereign states. It is my desire to play baseball in 1970, and I am capable of playing. I have received a contract offer from the Philadelphia club, but I believe I have right to consider other offers from other clubs before making any decision. I therefore request that you make known to all major league clubs, my feeling in this matter and advise them of my ability for the 1970 season, which wound up in a Leo case, Flood v. Coon. Yep. Which went to the Supreme Court. Yep. Um, and Flood's attorney, former Supreme Court Arthur Goldberg, he asserted that the reserve clause depressed the wages and limited players to one team for life. So we're looking at the beginning of free agency right here. Yep. Which would be a great episode on its own, but we can get to later. Yeah. Um, Major League Baseball's canceled considered the Commissioner Kuhn acted the rules which were set up and therefore his duty to uphold, mm-hmm. which I'm not saying I disagree with because if the rules are the rules until the rules are amended, yeah, you can't fault him for it, for the good of the game. And um, ultimately the Supreme Court... Ruled 5-3 in favor of baseball. Upholding a 1922 ruling in the case. Federal Baseball Club versus National League. Yeah, the Federal League. Yeah. Which, that, that's the that's what I've been saying, the antitrust exemption. Every time I say, you know, Congress threatens to take baseball's antitrust exemption away, that's from that court case in 22. The Federal League versus uh, Major League Baseball. But yeah, so in Kuhn, 
was both praised and attacked for his firm stand on everything. But, uh, however, his hard line against the PEDs before he hits drugs, as well as, you know, players were doing cocaine back then, as well as the 1981 strike, which we'll get into, I believe, the next episode, we're going to talk about the strikes in Major League Baseball. I feel like, you know, that's more relevant. We're, we're trying to stay as topical as we can for y'all. Yeah. It caused most of the Major League owners to turn against him. In 1983, Kuhn and his supporters made a lasting effort to renew his contract, but ultimately failed. So... He stayed till 1984 season. So, 84 was his last year. And then, after baseball, he returned to be a lawyer to Wilkie Farm Gallagher. Then he formed his own one, his own lawyer, uh, lawyer, his own law office with somebody. And then, you know, doing a whole bunch of stuff. And then he passed away in 2007. And he was in, posthumously inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2008 by the Veterans Committee. So, he's in the Hall of Fame. You got anything to add about him? Uh, that's all I can say. Like I said, we're, he's going to get his own episode eventually. So <laughs> let's talk about our next guy. So our next commissioner who replaced Bowie Coon was Peter Ubroff. Now this gentleman, excuse me, although he has at, coming into the game, coming coming to the commissioner, he had no ties to baseball. He had ties to sports. More specifically, the 1984 Summer Olympic Games in Los Angeles for. You know, he served as the organizer for the Olympics. Like, he was the chairman. His title was the president of the organizing committee for the Summer Olympic Games. This man spent from 80 to 84 getting things ready for the 84 Olympics. He was a prominent figure of the Games, and he received the Olympic order in gold at its conclusion. And the Olympic order, we'll go briefly is the highest award of the Olympic movement. It's awarded for particularly distinguished contributions to the Olympic movement, like recognition of efforts worthy of merit cost. So he, you know, he earned the Olympic order. So that's something for, for his job in making the 84 games a success. And he was named Time Magazine's Man of the Year 84 because of that. Right? That's so a hefty, um, that's a hefty honor. Right. And he... You know, they, the, the Olympic Games, like, the, the 84 Olympics were the first privately financed Olympic Games, and they resulted in a surplus of the $250 million. Which is not the case anymore. Right. Because now you leave your country in ruins if you host the Olympics. Pretty much. I mean, just... I think I think, the, I think Americans as a whole, we could pull that off. I think me and you talked about that recently. Yeah, like, we could pull it off, but, like, you go to Brazil, and there's just... That's just ruins and... Or Athens, Greece in 2004. We're, in, we're in, in China just now. These Olympics, they're doing damn ski jumping. Yeah. And damn near an industrial park. Right, yeah, I mean, you could you could you could go online and look at old ruins of Olympic venues. I think us as Americans, we have enough stadiums already built for the sports we enjoy here. Yeah, but it's not built for everybody. So, due to his success at organizing the Olympics in '84, he was elected to succeed Bowie Coon. Yep, and took office on October first of '84. Yep, and as a condition of his hiring, Uberoff increased the commissioner's fining ability from five thousand dollars. To $250,000. And, and he raised his own salary. Yeah, to $450,000, which is twice as much what Coon was paid. Which is less than half of what yeah. Kyle Manfred's getting. But so, and we'll be brief, but like, you know, he his time was eventful. Well, he came in and the um, Major League Baseball umpires union was threatening to strike on him. Mm-hmm. 
And he managed to arbitrate the disagreement and had the umpires back to work before the LCS were over. And the next summer, he worked behind the scenes to limit the player strike to one day. A single day. Take note, Manfred. Yeah. To one day, and it was worked out with the Players Association. The man got stuff done when it came to disagreements with the umpires and players, unlike Rob Manfred. But again, we're willing to make a we're going to get to Manfred here in a minute, right. and I'm going to be real heated about it, guys. Because I let y'all know, I'm not thrilled. I'm not happy with today. Anyway, uh, and then Uberoff reinstated Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle. Because Coon banned him for associating with gambling because it was detrimental to baseball. He got them reinstated. And I think there was a Sports Illustrated article where in the front page it's Uberoff and Mays and Mantle. Like, hey, they're reinstated. Yay. And, of course, this was when the 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 Pittsburgh trials of cocaine yeah. Del Barra, Lee Lacey, Lee Mazzelli, John Miller, Dave Parker, Rod Scurry. A little too much of the uh, devil dandruff. Yeah, and we can, well, cocaine use. We could that could be its own episode, but like you know, and then he initiated. Oh, they actually went to a grand jury in Pittsburgh. Yeah, this is it was Pittsburgh criminally trial. charged. Yeah, they were the Pittsburgh Seven, but his time with that's going to be an episode. Yeah, his time with uh, even though he was good with at least early on with working to agreements with the umpires and the players. I think his his um, the, I guess the stain on his uh, time as commissioner would be collusion, right? Where there were a bunch of good name players in every free agency in 85, 86, 87, and they want to go, you know, they they were going to enter free agency. They want to go to different teams, but they either got some of them got maybe one offer or no offers from teams, so they ended up resigning with their own team, you know, with their with their main team. So. You know, and basically, the Marvin Miller, who was the uh, oh, I'm sorry, but basically, Uberoff and the owners were colluding to not get free agents and higher salaries. Like they're just like, we're not going to do big free agent signings. We're not going to give them more money than what their home their home club was offering. So that was his staying on. Uh, that was his. That's his stain. That's his big controversy of his term. And like Donald Fear, who replaced Marvin Miller as head of the MLBPA, he filed collusion charges against Major League Baseball, and he won each case, which resulted in a second look at free agents and over two hundred eighty million dollars in fines. Right. So, and then like, um, he's also the commissioner that went best five, best seven. Yes, so he moved the uh, the a- the LCS to now five about seven, and he also started the investigation against Pete Rose. Yeah, which, and, oh, I'm sorry, what? which screw you for that, Mister Uberoff. That's a problem. Right, Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. But anyway, and he also, you know, all the clubs at the at the end of his term as commissioner. His last full season, all the clubs either broke even or finished in the black. Which, when he got into office, only twenty one of the twenty six clubs were losing twenty one of the twenty six clubs were losing money, and he got all the clubs to make money or at least break even. Well, and the reason he did that is because he found a new source of income in the force in the um, way of persuading, yeah, large, um, you know, like how you know you watch a NASCAR race, everybody has advertisers, yeah. 
He made sure that happened in baseball stadiums. Yeah. He's the guy that's the reason that Budweiser has a big ass advertisement in the center in the left center field of Turner Field. Or it well yeah. now what is it, Truist Park? Truist Park, yeah. Without him, you wouldn't have those damn million dollar a year advertisements there. And they, that's a big thing that he's also associated with. Yeah. So and because the collusion charges, I mean, the, the, the collusion cases went so poorly, and some of the players got big rewards for that. Ubrov stepped down as commissioner before the 89 season. His contract was going to run through that season, but he stepped down before it. And so after that, he went back to the Olympics, and in 2000, 2004, he was named the president of the United States Olympics Committee. So, and he's still alive today. He is 80. Well, he's born he's 84. In, yeah, he's 84 right now. So he's still alive, and I hope he's doing well. I don't know what he's doing now, but he's alive. So, and you There's know, a really good picture on Wikipedia of him with uh, Ronald Reagan. Yep. At, uh, at uh, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Yep. And so now we get to our next guy, who unfortunately probably had the shortest term as commissioner, Bart Giamatti, who is the dad of the actor Paul Giamatti. But before that, he was a he was the president at Yale University, and then he became the president of the National League from eighty six to eighty nine, and then he became commissioner of baseball. So, you know, Mr. Angelo Bartlett Giamatti. Yeah. So Giamatti apparently, like, you know, he I guess Yale had a union. Like maybe a teacher's union or something like that. And I guess they were, I guess Giamatti was tough dealing with them and it favorably impressed the baseball owners so much. You know, I guess at his time at Yale, it impressed him so much that they were like, hey, let's make him, you know, he's already nationally president, let's make him commissioner. He had a five, five month run out, though. Yeah. And- right. And so his main thing was banning Pete Rose from baseball. That's his, that's what Giamatti is known for. He banned Pete Rose from the game. He's like, you're gone. He also declined to reinstate Shoeless. Yeah, because he's he's like, no. He's not going to do it. And his reason was, now best given to historical analysis and debate opposed to a present interview of re- I of reinstatement. He's just like, I don't have any time for this. I don't, I don't care about that. You cheated. Sorry. Right. You don't belong here. Which I agree to. I agree with to a point. Yeah, Pete Rose is kind of a wild card as far as you know. Yeah, he broke the rules, and he knows he broke the rules. Everybody knows he broke the rules, but yeah. And so, eight days after he banned Pete Rose, he passed away from a heart attack at the age of fifty-one. So he, as of right now, he is he has the shortest term for a commissioner, which I, it's very sad. He's it's the like, only commissioner we've covered. So he's the second commissioner to die in office because Landis died in office. He's one of the two commissioners we've covered so far that's not in the Hall of Fame. Right. Also. Yeah. He's yeah. Him and Eckert are not. They're not in the Hall of Fame. Now, if Giamatti lived, he may he may have been in the Hall of Fame. We probably wouldn't have we probably wouldn't have Bud Selig as commissioner. You know, <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. But now we're going to talk about. Oh, we might not have an commissioner. <laughs> now we're going to talk about. 
Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about our next guy, Faith Vincent. I'm sorry. What, our opinions expressed are our opinions and nobody else's opinions. Right. So our next guy is Faith Vincent, who replaced uh, Giamatti. He was a lawyer, a securities regulator, and a sports executive. Well, I guess sports executive was later. But he was commissioner of baseball. <sighs> well, he worked for the – he was the associate director of the Division of Corporate Finance of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which is the other SEC. And he was the chairman of Columbia Pictures in 1978 and the senior vice president of Coca-Cola when Columbia purchased it in 1982. And he was executive vice president of Columbia in 86. So, you know, Barchi Amati was his friend. And at the behest of Giamatti, Vincent accepted the position of deputy commissioner. And then when Giamatti died, he consulted with his widow, Tony, Giamatti's widow. And after consulting with her, he became the commissioner of baseball after Giamatti's death. And I guess the owners were okay with that. Now, you know, of course, the 89 World Series, he had the earthquake. Which that really didn't affect his thing. But there was an owner's lockout during spring training 1990, which we can talk about in the next episode briefly. And of course, he banned George Steinbrenner from the game briefly. <laughs> and um, Enlighten me a little bit more on the George Steinbrenner thing, because I didn't realize he was ever banned from the game. As we talked about in the second episode, I, I remember us talking about it briefly a bit. Yeah. George. George Steinbrenner paid Howie Spira to dig up dirt on Dave Winfield. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And Commissioner basically, Faith Vincent was like, no, uh, that's not cool. You're you're getting banned. But. Okay, yeah. I remember it more now. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, he accepted, I guess he accepted a lifetime ban. But, like, he got brought back in 93. So, it's, you know. He, he took a, va- Steinbrenner took a little vacation. He went down to years. Florida and. Yeah. Hang out. And so, you know, Vincent, what can you say about Vincent? It's just like, you know. And he also permanently suspended pitcher Steve Howe for repeated drug offenses, which Steve Howe is a sad story. I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but it's, it's pretty sad. And he, apparently Howe was with the Yankees, and, you know, Vincent was incensed, incensed when Upper Yankee Management show Walter G. Michael Jack Lawn agreed to testify on Howe's behalf and threatened them with expulsion from the game. He threatened Buck Showalter and Michael and Lawn expulsion from the game for backing Steve Howe and, I guess, you know, a drug hearing. And they, st- they still testify for Howe's promise to remain after the baseball. And then, you know... See, look, Blake, that's Blake Vincent, you know, he just, he blames the effects of collusion because the, the players union doesn't trust ownership because of collusion, which would eventually get to the 94 strike. And uh, also in 91, he said, okay, the American League and National League are going to expand in 93, which will get to the Rockies and the Marlins. But, um, you know, and then realignment, they were talking about had plans to realign. He had plans to realign the National League because 
He wanted the Cardinals and Cubs to switch divisions with the Reds and Braves because they're both, like we talked about, Cubs and the Cardinals were in the East Division, the Reds and the Braves were in the West, which was weird, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it just, it didn't go through. And, you know, his relationship with the owners was always tenuous at best. And he resigned in 1992 after the others gave him an 18 to nine no vote of no confidence vote. So he's like, the no only, confidence. That's just right. You're and not they, the guy. And the owners were still mad. We're just we're still mad at him over the 1990 lockout of his intervention. So he pissed off the owners, and the owners were like, you gotta go. And afterwards, he wrote a bunch. See, not see. I'm sorry. Faye Vincent wrote a bunch of books which are similar to. Lawrence, Larry Ritter's The Glory of Their Times. It's basically like modern versions of The Glory of Their Times. Like he would get old players and he they would he would tell their stories and all that. It's, it's kind of like his version of Glory of the Times. Like when they were younger or something like that. I don't know. Like, I can't think of anything. But like he wrote these similar similar Glory of Their Times books after his time as commissioner and you know, people interview him for certain things and he's still, he's still alive and he still talks and about baseball. He's like a year younger than Uberoff, so... He's like, 80. well, he'll be 84 in May, but yeah. he's just doing his thing. So now we can talk about Bud Selig. Alan Huber. Quote, unquote, Bud Selig. Yeah. Who was, oh, man. What, what can you I didn't say? Realize, I didn't realize how old he is. Yeah, he's ancient. He's, he was born in 1934. He, he was born senior as Hank Aaron was. He saw World War II, man, and uh, he got in the Hall of Fame in 2017 on the Today's Game Committee, which I didn't realize was a thing. Right. How many Hall of, how many committees does Hall of Fame have, man? Uh, we got to be like 17 at this point, you know? Everybody getting in on different committees. <laughs> I'm tired of this, man. I'm t- just get back to the Veterans Committee. I'm tired of these different committees. <laughs> the Today's Game Committee. <laughs> we got, he got in on 93.7 of the Today's Game Committee. Yeah. But uh, during his term of service, man, the steroids was a big deal. Um, the Mitchell Report, which is hell on wheels. Yeah. Um, he concluded the MLB commissioners, club official, the MLBPA, and the uh, players all shared to some extent the responsibility of the steroid, which I really, truly agree with. Yeah. It's not his fault everybody was on dope. No. But um, and he, but he's the one that kind of made it known like we're not doing dope anymore. Yeah, because there weren't really rules against it. Like uh, Big Poppy, David Ortiz, Hall of Famer in the upcoming class. Yeah, but yeah, he got popped for a steroid test, but it wasn't really illegal at yeah. the time, you know. And <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Man. Like play the rules are given. Now, now, Sea Lake. He got into baseball because he bought the Seattle Pilots and moved them to Milwaukee and became the Brewers. And that's why the um, MLB headquarters was in Milwaukee for a brief minute. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, was it not? It may have. I, I You have to double check on that. But uh, he was a Brewers owner. And then once they got rid of Fabian, well, when Fabian's resigned, he became the acting commissioner. He wasn't the official commissioner. I guess he was like the they. I guess they were thinking of him as like the interim commissioner. But they didn't. But the owners did not make him the official commissioner until 1998. But he ruled baseball since 92 to 2013, and there was a lot going. Like he expanded the playoffs, and they did the divisions. 
right? They expanded the divisions. So instead of having East and West divisions for American League National League, East Central West, East Central West now, which I think was great for in baseball. Yeah, I agree. You know, the wild card and expanding playoffs is great, but of course you got the '94 strike, which we'll talk about the next episode. Yeah, next episode um, we're going to do for you guys. It'll be out right. two weeks from this one. will be strikes and lockouts. Right. And as we all know, they, they canceled the season after all, like in August. There was no World Series. And it was a detrimental to the fan, fan right. of baseball. And baseball is just now really getting back to the fan in the head. Then. Right. It, it, yeah. It pissed off a lot of fans. It lost a lot of fans. And it didn't get them back until 98, which we talked about in the home run race. I've got, um, a, I've got a poster somewhere up in the attic of um, fans in um, Bush Stadium. Yeah. F.U., C-League, <laughs> and especially the Cardinals, because they were really good in that time period. Right. right. It's so, like, we're out. And so were the Expos. The Expos got robbed. And then Tony Gwynn. That's why they're a franchise because of it. Yeah. If you really want to get down to brass tacks. If that strike didn't happen, the Expos may still have been in Montreal. Let's just say that. If you want to get out of brass tacks, I want to disagree with you. Yeah. And um, Tony Gwynn was on a hot streak. He was getting close to 400. He could have hit 400 that year. But nope. Season ended, at, I think it was August 12th. Best year to ever hit a baseball with Tony Gwynn. There's, there's a lot. I mean. I don't know, man. I'm not, or, or, in our lifetime. In our, yeah, lifetime. In our lifetime. I'll, I'll give you that in our lifetime. Tony Gwynn. He, he'll get his own episode. But, you know, C-League is just. I look forward to that episode. C-League is, he he did a lot of changes for the game. He'll get his own episode in the future because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, do you guys Where do you do want to start with him? With Manfred? No, C-League. Oh, C-League? Start on C-League. Where do you want to start with C-League? Shoot, I don't, I don't What about making the All-Star game matter? Okay, yeah. So he made the All-Star game matter. I don't like that. I think it's weird. I, I think mean, it's wackadoo. I right. think I think because the National League won the All Star Game, an All Star Game where all your best talent comes together, yeah. that should not make any difference in what happens in the World Series. Yeah, I think the team with the best record coming into the World Series should have home field advantage. Yeah, well, it he started this in two thousand three after the infamous, after it went forever. Right after the infamous tie. Which happened in Milwaukee, which I'm sure that which he said that was embarrassing. Like the, the way they did the tie was embarrassing, which I agree that's embarrassing. Yeah, well, the, the manager threw everybody in and he ran out of players. It's an all star game. It's not right. They didn't. They could play that game a hundred times. It would not end that way again. They didn't expect it to go extra innings like that. They could play that game a hundred times. It would not end that same way ever no. again. No. And so in twenty three, sorry, two thousand three, he made the all star game matter, like. Whoever next won, year after that, right? Right. Whoever won the home field, whoever won the All-Star game, regularly, actually, they got home field advantage. I don't like it. And apparently that practice was initiated until, and continued until 2016. So I guess after the 2016 All-Star game, they stopped. I guess Manfred was like, no, we're not going to do this. this I thought it still mattered. I guess and, I'm out of touch. You know, and then yeah, performance-hancing drugs. It's like, again, you're – this should have been dealt with, like with Ubroff. Ubroff should have dealt with this crap. In the well, he had to deal with Barry Bonds during his time period. Yeah, who should still be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, with an asterisk, I guess. Because it, it's no, there's no, there's no way he didn't do drugs. Yeah, 
Whether he's going to admit there or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, Everybody knows. It's very obvious. Right. It's just, uh, you know. But, he, but even in the fact you should be like, build the game wing now. Build the game committee. Since we have all yeah. these committees, man. Like, without people like Barry Bonds, like, people in our generation wouldn't be fans. Yeah. And, of course, he extend, after he extended the initial playoffs in the 90s, he extended it again with, like, a wild card game with two wild card teams. I despise I, that. Initially, I despised it. I still do. But then again, you had, like, the 2014 Royals who won that wild card game and then made it to the World Series that year against the, the Giants, which I've well, See, I like it in senses like that. Like, uh, the Super Bowl this last year. You yeah. got two wild card teams that make it there. But I'm, I'm looking back on it, like, you play 162 games. Yeah. And one game decides your fate. I don't like that. I know. And then you look back on it, which... I'm about to trigger a bunch of Brave fans. Yeah. That fly ball call in the Braves Cardinals game? Yeah. What, 2015? That was 2011. 2011? Yeah. Early 20s. The year doesn't matter. Everybody knows the call. Right. Everybody knows the call. And so much trash was thrown on the field. Oh, yeah. But if the infielder is able to get back, per the rules of baseball, if the infielder is able to set his feet under it, it's an infield fly. Yeah. So the rule on the field was technically right, but that one play in a play-in game against the play-in that we were talking about yeah. cost the Braves a chance. And I'm a Cardinals fan, and I pull for the Braves because they're on cable television every night. Yeah. So, but that you know, things like that, man, it's just yeah, I disagree with that. He expansion at 100% because of like plays like that, man. You you left one, you left 162 games in the balance of a single fly ball. Mm-hmm. And that's where I have a problem with that playoff expansion. I, I agree with that. Now, he also did interleague play. He started interleague play in 97. I, I kind of dig that. Yeah, I like that. Um, he made all, he made everybody retire Jack Robinson's number in 97 as well. We all play for number forty-two on four um, two. Yeah, he got he he transferred his beloved Milwaukee Brewers from the American League to the National League in '98, which also that year the Diamondbacks and the Rays, or Devil Rays at the time, became teams in the '98 expansion. They're still and, a Devil Rays in my book. Right. <laughs> and then he abolished he abolished the American National League offices and presidencies. Like so, we had, we no longer have an American League or a National League president. It's all just the commissioner. And I think that's kind of what's leading to what we're about to get into Manfred here in a second. Yeah. I think that those the abolishment of those offices is really going to lead into what we're about to get into with Rock, uh, Mr. Manfred. And also the start of the World Baseball Classic in 2006, which I'm just kind of... I'm a fan of, but... And he expanded it into replay, so there you go. I, I hate replay. It's well, all right, here's my deal with replay. You don't, you don't want my opinion on replay. You're getting it regardless whether you want it or not. Okay. College football overdoes replay, so does baseball. Yeah. You it should be you get one replay a game. If you use your replays appropriately, you can get I think what three or four a game? Maybe yeah. three? I'd say so, yeah. You should get one. Get if one. you're wrong, you lose it. Right. <laughs> if you're right, you keep it and you can replay again. Yeah. Boom, replay fixed. 
Like I I despise the replay thing. It for a game that is so trying to speed games up. Yeah. That replay crap slows it down so much more. Because um like we were we were in um, San Francisco in September. There was a ten minute delay on the replay on Tiger second base in a game that was five to nothing. Jeez Louise. You know like what why? 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 This is not replay I mean, I understand that certain instances need to be replayed, but man, why waste ten minutes on that? was the game where Eddie Zero for the cycle too. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's just, oh, it's just dumb. And then after baseball, he taught. He was, he, he teaches or he taught a class at Arizona State for I guess like baseball law or something like that. Probably the San Diego Congress College of Law. And so he, he 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 actually teaches. But like you know, and before baseball, before he got into baseball, he was a car salesman. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. But you know, hey, there ain't no shame in selling cars. I used to do it. Nope. And good at it. Absolutely not. You know, it's a, it's a good If you can sell a car to somebody that's just fucking kicking tires, yeah, you can sell whatever. I got, uh, I, that's all I got about Sealy. What about you? Yeah, I think we covered what our grievances and our appreciations. So let's talk about the current commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. <laughs> right, he's a lawyer. Well, he, he's making himself look bad right now. And I was talking to some friends of mine today. Yeah. Who are, um, actually, I was talking to the guy that works for the trash bands today. Yeah. And, um, I pick my words wisely here to make myself not look like a jackass. But, um, we got a problem right now with the players' union and them, and it's all about service time, and it doesn't benefit the fact that the Atlanta Braves are a publicly traded company. Yep. And they released their um, revenue statements at the end of the quarter. That didn't help the in Major League Baseball's case. And it's the whole deal now is about service time. And, you know, I, I don't know. What do you want to start with Rob Manfred? Uh, well, he was a lawyer. Well, I was going to say he's a lawyer. Well, most uh, – uh, so was C-League. A lot of more lawyers. Yeah, like – with the exception of Eckert and Chandler. Well, in modern times, right. most and, of them are lawyers. And Uber, yeah, like a majority of the, the ten have, or lawyers or... At least have a background in business or... Yeah, like, you know, I would love to be commissioner of baseball, but man, I could never be. I, could never be I nominate Tom Glavin right now. Yeah. He's uh, a longtime union rep. He's a very intelligent man. I think he would uh, benefit the game well because he played both sides. Because he understands it from both sides. Yeah. I nominate him for the next commissioner in baseball. You heard it here first, Tom. Please do it. So how Manfred got into baseball. In 1987, he began working with Major League Baseball during collective bargaining. And then during the 94 strike, he served as outside counsel for the owners. He was a CBA lawyer. Right. And he joined Major League Baseball full-time status in 1998, serving as the executive vice, excuse me, executive vice president of economics and league affairs. And he negotiated MLB's first drug testing agreement with Major League Baseball Players Association in 2002 and represented Major League Baseball in negotiations with MLBPA when forming new collective bargaining agreements in 2002, 2006, and 2011. And at the end of the 2013 season, Seeler promoted Manfred to chief operating officer of MLB. And, um, you know, following the announcement of Seeler's retirement, 
Manfred became a finalist to succeed him, and on August 14th of 2014, the owners elected Manfred's to seat Seelig, beating Boston Red Sox chairman Tom Warner as ML- and MLB executive vice president of business Tim Brosnan. Can I stop you right there? Yeah. Who selected Manfred as the new commissioner? The, it says the MLB owners. The owners. Right. Which puts us where we're at right now. Yeah. Because the, the owners, they always pick the, it seems like they always pick. The, they want to pick somebody that's going to be in their favor. Right. They don't want, they're not going to pick somebody that's for the player's favor. They're not going to pick Tom Glavin to be. No, it's a competitive business. It's a, it's a, for lack of a better term. Well, no, not for lack of a better term. It's literally a monopoly. Yeah. Oh, man. What, what can you say about Manfred? My big problem with Manfred during his time period and I'm sure he hasn't done all bad, but the things I watch as a baseball fan, and me and you as traditional baseball fans, mm-hmm. we don't like watching the game change. No. Um, so we're going to introduce a um, league-wide designated hitter. Yeah. Against it. Time clock, against it. Yeah. Because they're doing things like this to speed the game up. So that people that aren't baseball fans will pay money to go watch an extra baseball game a year. As, and while they're running, people like me, you, Coach Johnny Chorderis, um, KD. Those um, guys, yeah. Or Ian. Ian Tabor. Um, Russell, maybe. Even Russell Michael at this point is, he's starting to see what I'm talking about baseball. Yeah. You know, I, and that, this is what's happening right now with Mr. Manfred. Um, if people have to understand... Baseball wasn't always long. Be, you know, in the early days before the advent of radio and television, games would last less than two hours on yeah. a regular basis. But it's all about advertising revenue now. Right. And you extend so how the about game. you cut a little bit of advertising revenue if you want the game to go faster? Right. And you extend the game, and then you got relief pitchers, the advent of relief pitchers, which takes up That's time. another thing that makes me mad. Right. As a, as, as a spot reliever... That was my role playing college baseball. I was a closer or I was a spot reliever. Yeah. And now in baseball, under Commissioner Manfred's rule, if I come in, I have to face three hitters. There were times where I came into baseball games in college. My job was to get that one left-hander out. Yeah. My job was coming to get that one guy out. If I didn't get him out or if I got him out, I was coming out anyway. Mm-hmm. And he's changing the – Chess match that baseball really is. And that is a problem that I have. Yeah. And I understand he is, he is, it's kind of like being the president of the United States. Yeah. He's the figurehead. And there's a lot of people in the middle that make other decisions, especially on the, um, the legal side of how we're trying to pay players and stuff like that. I understand that 1,000%. But these rule changes that baseball is making under his watch are making him look like a pushover of a commissioner. Yeah. And the owners don't care because he's their guy. Every owner, every team pays him a million dollars a year. At this point, yeah. At this point, today is supposed to be the the, the deadline for the – we'll talk about this next week or next episode, but – it's fucking frustrating, man. It's frustrating. I get so good about my test and I find it open up. And I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I am to the point where I'm like, you know what? If they don't want to, if, they, if the owners are that willing, 
to wipe out a good slate of games in April. They're going to take a whole month. They're going to take 28 games off everybody's schedule. Stupid. If they're that 28 games of in-stadium revenue of jersey sales, beer sales, Coke sales, hot dog sales. They're that willing to do that. They're beating the freeze across the outfield of the Atlanta Braves Stadium. Um, The wiener races in Milwaukee. Like, we're really really willing to cost the fans that? Do you really care about us? And they want to charge us, you know, $30, $40 a ticket or whatever to go to these games. It's, oh, we could buy a twelve dollars nosebleed ticket, but you're gonna spend thirty five bucks while you're there, right? And then pay you for parking and all this crap. You, you, it's just stupid. It makes me like, you know what? We don't need. You know, I'm at this point. I'm like, whatever. I, we don't need major league baseball when we have minor league baseball, which is still, which they plan to still play in April. We'll go watch the trash fans every night, Absolutely. and they're they're gonna be on WAY's secondary channel. Yeah, and we can just watch that. I will. I will go. I will go to trash pans games, independent minor league baseball. I'm really jealous you're going to see the uh, bananas. Yeah, I was gonna get. I'm gonna get to them. The Savannah Bananas. That's the hottest show in baseball right now, and they know how to market themselves. I will say this for the record. Thank God for Jesse Cole. Who owns the bananas guy? Yeah, he owns the man, the yellow tuxedo. For bringing excitement to baseball, which we absolutely need, because if anybody who's good, if anybody can revive baseball interest in baseball with people in our generation, on a scale of one to electric, that guy gets a thirteen point five. Right, it's him. Thank God for Jesse Cole and Savannah Bananas, because it's, if we don't get to have Major League Baseball in April, I'm still going to Rickwood Field to watch Savannah Bananas play and see Bill Lee pitch. Y'all hear that high five? If not, there's another one. Right. And, but, um, and we also have high school baseball. Got to support my boy, Coach Mosley, at Hooper High School. Uh, we were all ready to support our guy, um, you know what I'm talking about, uh, Shelby Hunter. Uh, Coach Hunter, who's getting railroaded, which is a problem. Right. That's a local hustle problem. If y'all aren't from Huntsville, y'all will understand. Right. But, and, um, you know, of course, I support Grissom, who... I forgot the name of their coach, but he played baseball at UNA, so I'm down with that. And, of course, you know, Patrick's coach is Lee Butch, Butch Weaver. Can't believe he's still coaching. Yeah. But, you but, know, um, I, we have there are other things of baseball to watch if Major League Baseball and the players don't find an agreement. And I know, I, know, I know there's more to this than Manfred. Right. But he is the – it's kind of like when Trump was the – or even Biden right now. Who, it doesn't matter. You're president. You're the right. – you're the figurehead of the whole damn deal. Everything that happens under you falls on you. And I think Manfred is doing a bad job pushing this down, down through. And the fact that owners are willing to forfeit a month of stadium money. That means they're making way too much money. Yeah. And they're afraid to play the players, which the players would be greedy to. Yeah. But we just want our damn entertainment. Right. I mean, I would love to go... To a major league baseball game, I'd love to go to the Truist Park or Truist Field to see Braves or anywhere else. But it's it. This is I feel like this is hurting the game. This the, they can't reach an agreement. It's I think I, I really think under Manfred's power, the, all the rule changes they made, they're driving people like me and you that are baseball traditionalists. Yeah, that uh, like the game for what it was. 
They DH roll the time clock, all these random things. I think they're driving people like me, you, Coach Childress, KD, um, Mike Dodson, um, Sven. Yeah. I think all of this stuff, uh, Russ Weichel, um, anybody that knows the game for what it really was. Yeah. I feel like they're driving us away from this game. And it's, it, it's not necessarily Manfred's fault, but it's happening under his watch. And it's got to. And so at, at some point, he's got to put his foot down and be like, and some of it's probably his call. Right. But at some point, he's got to put his damn foot down and be like, enough's enough. And nowadays, I feel like I'm in the minority by saying I like baseball on a baseball field. And people, whether watch NFL or NBA or any other sport. NBA, NBA is trash. NFL is kind of, eh. college football is cool. Yeah, college I, basketball is cool. I like NBA, it. NFL, see ya. Have yeah. fun. Of course, you like NASCAR, but yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a. I'm a white trash son of a gun. But well, I'll own it. Manfred, but <laughs> Manfred, I mean, Manfred's crazy, you know, with the way he handled the 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 Astro sign stealing sign stealing scandal. Oh, they should have just lost their franchise, in my opinion. But there's that, that, that you can't do that. I right. understand you can't. do People that. People wanted to want Manfred to take their trophy away and vacate it. And, well, you can't do that. He, he's not. If this is not NCAA basketball. I think I think hit them with the right amount of. Um, I think he hit them with the right amount. They should uh, forfeit draft picks for the next three years. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. You should not have a draft pick for the next two or three years because of that. Yeah. But, I don't know. I just I just think he's allowing baseball to become – he's trying to make baseball more commercialized than it ever has been, and he's failing very much so in doing so. Yeah. And then, you know, just – And then and I'm sure he doesn't have an easy job. Right, you and know. it's not a it's not a bed of roses. You have to make tough decisions. You have to be willing to deal with the players. But guess what? You signed up for that job. Yeah, you you've been in Major League Baseball. We were connected to us since 1987. You signed up for that job, and all you've done is alienate long term baseball fans in the hopes of getting small term baseball fans. Yeah, it's gotten to the point where Goose Gossage wants to punch you in the face. Oh, I love this gossage. Oh, but his his Twitter rants and his Facebook rants are amazing. Did you see the interview that USA Today did with him last week? I read that and I was like, "He's like, you're a cheater. You're gone. You're the commissioner. You're gone, Mrs. Revamped. I love it. It's got to the point where he doesn't. He's not even thinking. He's not even going to come to come to the Cooperstown this this uh this this year for the induction. He's like, I don't think I'm going to go because. Because they're making a travesty of our game. Right. He told Jay Force Clark that. And he cussed he cussed in front of Jay Force Clark. And I'm like, Jay Force Clark probably did not appreciate that because that woman is the definition of etiquette. And well, goose, guess what? The goose is loose. Right. The goose is loose. <laughs> absolutely. Look, I, Manfred has just pissed both Patrick and I off. I really don't care. Oh, I've been looking for it. We've been, we've been talking about this episode for two weeks. I have been waiting to vent right. on Manfred. We could talk. And about I guarantee you, Keith Wagner, I'm going to tag him in this. He's going to lose hell. He's going to lose his bucket about it. And you know Keith, probably. Yeah, I, I'm vaguely familiar with him. Yeah. Like my mom falls oh, he's a habitual pot star. I'm off Facebook friends with him. So. No, he's a habitual pot star. Right. And like, Your mom probably told him that. Yeah, it's probably it. And like he shares baseball posts, and mom will share them with me. Like, oh, look at what Keith posted. Hey, yeah, Keith. That's cool. Hey, Keith. I hope you listen to this. So, yeah. Just a posture. But uh, <laughs> that's all I got to say about Manfred is for right now. Like I said, we'll talk about next episode when we're going to talk about the strikes. And Manfred will eventually get his own episode too, like Landis and Seelig and all these guys. 
But man, it's I'm not just, sure, man. Print desserts is on, but we might get there. Yeah, or we could just talk about them in detail next episode. I don't really. We can just talk about horrible commissioners and put him in that class. It's, but hell, man, I think we might got to cover. Right. There's been ten commissioners in baseball history, and they've all been influential in their own way, and they've all been controversial in their own way. You know, I think we're probably more mad at him because it's current. Right. If it's, you want to be honest about it, it's very current. We're topical. It's topical. I uh, just like which is why we did this commission episodes now, and then um, when we get back, today is the twenty eighth of February. I'll be back on um, what the third or fourth of March, and we're gonna record a new one, and it'll be whatever this baseball thing ends up being. Right, but I am so ready for minor league baseball. I'm just ready for race. baseball in general. I'm excited about Tommy White of the NC State Wolfpack. He is my new favorite player, baseball player. Are you talking about Long Ball Tommy? Yeah, Long Ball Tommy Tanks. What about that? What Tommy Tanks? And what about that kid from Tennessee that's the closer that throws 103? Oh, I forgot about him. I can't think of his name. I mean, I don't even know he has a name. He's just a 103 mile hour closer guy. Yeah, he's just. That's gas, bro. Tommy White is a freshman at NC State. And this bro, man, the, the, I got top one gun at 96. Yeah. He's and hit, this guy is a freshman throwing 103. I think he's hit like yeah, – Tommy White's hit like nine home runs in eight games. He's my new favorite player. I don't care. If he's he's a walk-on. He's a walk-on. He's a walk-on, bro. No, I think he signed with NC State. He, I, I think he, Well, he started as a walk-on. No, no, no. Tommy White signed with NC State from IMG Academy. Yeah, but he signed as a walk-on, no scholarship. Right. And now he's – he's probably got scholarship now, but he was a walk-on. This man could help NC State get to the College World Series if he doesn't get injured and he doesn't get on a hitting slump. But anyway, that's all I want to talk about. He's electric, man. Yeah, I love I love I love Tommy White. He's my new favorite baseball player. Tommy Longballs. Tommy Longballs, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's all I gotta say about this episode with the commissioners. There's a lot to go for. You know, the commissioners are all interesting in their own way. And yeah, that's all I got to say. So this has been a fun episode. Yeah, I think I think it's been a really good one. Yeah, thank you for thank you so much for listening to all of our listeners. Rob Manfred, please put your clown nose on. And we would love to have a discussion <laughs> with you, Mister Manfred, whenever you're available. It won't happen, but we'll reach out to your office. Yeah, in our, New York, um, we'll see if we'll see if we can zoom you. Our people will week. call your people. Hey, Sonia, do you mind calling Rob Manfred for us? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right, but all it. right, until next time, I'm Patrick. And I'm Matthew Carter. This is Matthew. Thank you for listening to us. Kennesaw Mountain Landers was a bad motherfucker. He was 17 feet tall. He had 150 wives. He didn't do that much except he saved the game of baseball. He put two and two together and he noticed it was four. Now the treachery of Shoeless Joe can't hurt us anymore. And he'll always be remembered as Kennesaw Mountain Landers. Felon named Joe Jackson was a fielder for the Black Sox. And he always wore his Black Sox, but he never wore no shoes. Weren't the nicest fellow. And he had a couple problems Cause he drank a lot and he beat his wife And he always acted rude Killed and ate some babies and he copped an attitude He won the manly 
trusty gun and everybody in the stand knew that he had won and today they still refer to him as Kennesaw Mountain Landed Shoeless Joe left baseball and became a famous pop star and he asked the musical question is she really going out with him he had a couple albums and a comeback in the 80s But he never won a Grammy and he never was the same And he never could be satisfied with critical acclaim But the critics all confused him with the great Elvis Costello Yes, the critics all confused him with the great Elvis Costello 